0: Welcome everyone to the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. Today's episode is part two of the Parenting and Enneagram Discussion Panel that took place in Austin, Texas. If you missed the first half, no worries, just hop on over to episode 51 and give it a listen there. A real quick reminder to everyone that Enneagram Bootcamp is coming up this summer and registration is already filling up. This year, the title is Stress, Security, and the Speed of Life. You can find more information and registration at lifeinthetrinityministry.com, and you can also find it at suzannestabile.com. Hope you can come and join us, and we also hope you enjoy today's show. Show so. us <laughs> much soap I got. It. But one of the first questions tweeted was, is it more important or useful to know your aniram number or your child's? And so you go ahead and, yeah, go ahead and. (laughs) But it's a, it's a great question. And, but it, it speaks to so many other things that stem from this answer.
1: It's far more important for you to know your number than for you to know theirs. And for a long time, the most important thing you can do is work on your number. So for those of you who are new to the Enneagram at any, you are the same number all your life. So that's already done. So don't be listening for a parenting style you think you can adopt because it's not going to (laughs) work. The most important thing you can do is be healthy in your number. So there's a lot of movement in the Enneagram, and it has primarily to do with when you're in your number healthy or average or unhealthy or in excess in your number or pathological. It just occurs to me that that must feel terrible for me to start over here with healthy and end up over here with pathological. (laughs) But we could reverse that. So the the work that you do is to be healthy in your number. And if you are doing that work, what number your child is doesn't matter very much. Because you'll be healthy enough to accommodate that.
2: Suzanne, I'll, I'll just quickly... I mean, so Elizabeth's been kind of familiar with Enneagram since she was, I think, 18 years old. And we have... Two teenagers, and um, you know, we had some ideas about what they were, but when they figured out what number they were, we were surprised. Like, you know, we would talk about it and think about it and kind of discuss it. We were totally surprised when they figured out what their numbers were. So, even if you think you're like really educated on the enneagram and really observant of your kid, um, just don't assume. You know,
3: what numbers are your children, so we can see the dynamics. Um, My daughter's a three. She's, um, 19 and she's over there. There she is. And my son has just found out he's a four from Joey. And, um,
2: uh, he's 16. I
3: think I remember one time you said, don't deprive them of that journey. And, um, I really tried to honor that. Um, and I think it's really hard to not say I think you're this or I think you're that or blah 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 but I think if you cannot do it and then when they get old enough to go hear it for themselves or learn because they want to, then they get to have the whole journey themselves and not try to, I mean Anything you've ever said to them will just be like roadblocks along the way. So,
2: it feels very unnaming to be told what you are without figuring it out for yourself, right? That's very—I mean, even for adults, none, none of us like to be told, "Hey, you're this." I mean, you're this number. Um, it just doesn't feel good, right? So imagine that for a kid.
1: A lot of pushback comes with that.
2: Uh, raise your hand if you have multiple children. All right,
0: excellent. Uh, if nobody raised their hand, we'd have moved on. But um, <laughs> one of the questions that came through, and this has come through all the different sites and social medias multiple times. Uh, if y'all can all speak to this and mom teach to this. Um, people who have multiple kids don't know their number, but they're clearly different numbers. And you want to meet them in the space where they're at, especially when it comes to discipline, disciplining them. And knowing that one child needs a different, you know, not having a standard. This is how we all do it, and then being fair to everybody. How, you know, talk to that. How, how to do that? If that's the deal. So if I'm sorry, I'm not great with the questions here, uh, but you've got one child who is excelling in all these things, and you've had a set amount of rules for them, and then the second child comes along, and they're not the same. They're not responding the same way to uh, the rules that were there, how to go from there. And then four kids, five kids. One lady said six kids.
1: All right, so I'm going to set the table with a story and then y'all answer and then I'll come back and teach based on anything you leave out. Um, When our oldest uh, was 18 months old, uh, I bought a pair of pink. Panties for her that had lace on the back and said, literally, I literally took them out of the package. I held them up and I said, do you want these? And she said, yes. And I said, well, then stop pottying and pooping in your pants. And she said, okay. And then I thought, what is wrong with you people? That you're whining on and on about potty training? There's nothing to this. So then Jenny came along and uh, her color was purple. And so um, at 18 months, I bought purple panties and with lace on them, and I held them up and I said, Do you want these? And she looked at them and said, No. <laughs> and there I was. And there I was. Our oldest slept all night at 10 days. Our youngest slept all night at five, not days. So, um first of all what if we could just stop judging one another right all that stuff about look at them i'd never do that that child should be home in bed look at that would you ever let your so our children
0: he's too young to be on a jet ski going 50.
1: (laughs) (laughs) so so let's start there all right now all of you have a A place to stand there to start working so do you think?
4: None of us know we're like well I don't know Uh, I think part of uh, part of it for for me and um, you know what we're aiming for with our kids is first like being a student of our kids not assuming that we know everything about them or how they're thinking or what they're passionate about or what they wanna be when they grow up or what they're into in life, but just being a real good student of them. Um, we have you know, a 15 year old, two 13 year olds, an 11 year old. And I can see our 15 year old is a different person now than he was when he was four or five and tried to be a, a good student of like him and what he's into and what he's like. And then adjusting parenting, around that because he's totally different than one of the 13-year-olds. And those two 13-year-olds are very different
5: from each other.
4: And I think if there's not this posture of like, I want to lean in and try to understand their life and what's in their head and what's stirring in their heart, then I think all you're doing is putting assumptions on them. I think the second thing is like all of us asking, what are we trying to parent our kids toward? Like, what is the, what's the goal? Like, what are we trying to do? as we have this really short window with parenting kids that live in our house. And for me, you know, it'd be easy just to go, well, I I have this idea that I want to parent them towards, but it's got to be something bigger than that. It's got to be something better than that. If I'm just shepherding them to be like me or my ideal, it's going to fall flat, and they're going to resent that, and they're not going to be the human being that they're created to be. And so my ultimate goal for them regardless of their wiring and their personality, is I want to give them the standard of I want them to become more like Christ. And for each kid, it means they're going to have a different journey. There's going to be different hard lessons. There's going to be different failures in their life, different wins in their life. But I have to kind of have a blank slate in looking at them and this one kind of thing that I'm holding. Like, I want to help them become more like Him. I want to help teach them what it looks like to be kind and generous and to have self-control, and patience, and kindness, and all of these sort of things, and then parent around that. So it's being a student of them, and then having the standard that's different than just, hey, be like me. That's pretty lame, you know.
1: One of my favorite things that ever came out of my mouth that I didn't know I knew was uh, because the rules were different for our kids once we learned the Enneagram, The rules were pretty much the same, but the punishment was different because they responded differently to being, uh, to consequences. And, um, one of the children accused me one time of many times, but on this one occasion, when the children accused me of being partial to one child, they said, he's your favorite. And I said, that's not true. And hands on her hips. She said, okay, who is your favorite? And my answer was the child who needs me the most in that moment. Mm. And I think our children need us more at different times for different reasons. And it is our responsibility to be able to read that and to be able to give ourselves to that and to be able to teach the other children how to accommodate that. And, uh, you know, Nathaniel and Elizabeth kind of started early on talking about the fact that it... This whole thing of we're on the same page and we always agree and all of that is as fallible as fallible as all the consequences are going to be the same. Because if you send a 7 to his room, he, Joel can turn his bedroom into Disney World in 15 seconds flat. <laughs> so I knew that wasn't a good punishment when he started saying, can I just go to my room? <laughs> You know I'd be lecturing him and he'd say, I know I'm so sorry. I should go to my room. <laughs> well then, you know, that's not working, right? So that's just a piece. Yeah, I, so we
2: had a... Um, when when was little and she didn't get in trouble very much, but occasionally she would, and we'd put her out in the yard, out by the trash can, and say, you just stay out here for a while. And, and you know, time would go by and... We'd go out there and, you know, she's a three and she would be just out. She would have created this world. She'd be be out there singing songs. So we tried that with Henry and he's a four. And my God, there were claw marks on the door. I mean, he was terrified. Right. So it didn't work for him.
3: I think what I was thinking about when you were talking is that, so I didn't, obviously I didn't know Henry was a four as a child, but he was very emotionally um, volatile, but also very emotionally complex. And so I had to always be present to that and be available for that. And now that he's 17, he doesn't want anything to do with me. And, um, he needs a roof over his head and he needs a bed and he needs food. And he needs me to like hold a place for him to become who he is going to become. And that is a very unemotional stance to have. It's just a very neutral place holding. It's about having faith in the very big picture of who he is and not getting distracted emotionally by what's right in front of me now, which is extremely hard as a four and a four on a four. And it's very, it's such a massively different style than earlier, but I mean, it's hard. I'm not saying it's
2: easy. And also having the discipline to let him fail and not step in and not, draw the path for him that we think he needs to follow. That's so hard. So, so hard to watch your child fail and tell him you love him and not intervene. It's really hard.
6: I I think I don't have anything to contribute about the discipline with the different kids, but I think I would, since we're talking about having multiple kids with different um, Enneagram numbers, and Aaron and I have suspicions about our kids, but we definitely haven't Don't know what any of our kids are. But I think one of the most difficult things for me as a parent is, um, and we're being honest here, and so I'm just going to say what you all thought before. I love all my kids. I would step in front of a train for all of them, but sometimes I just don't like them, you know? And so I think that is difficult with having four different, six possibly different personalities in our house, of feeling as though connecting with them sometimes when I just we're not connecting because we're seeing the world through different lenses. And so I guess my point in saying that is not about discipline, but just having so many different type of people in my home of me having to fight really hard to connect with someone that's hard for me when I'd rather just connect with this one kid that I connect with super easily and having to fight for that. I think that is something that I didn't know as a parent would be an issue is that I thought that, and, And for us, it's a little different because three of our kids joined our family through adoption. But I still just thought, well, I'm just going to connect with all of them easily. And it has not always been that way. And there are different seasons for each kid. But as a mom, having to fight to connect with a kid was kind of alarming and disturbing for me because I didn't know it was going to be that way.
7: Yep. Uh, our kids are not uh, teenagers yet, so discipline is a little bit different when you have little kids and older kids. Uh, so with that caveat, I won't talk about discipline, partly because I'm a 7 as well, so I want to talk about cuddle, cuddle time. Um, <laughs> so we have a bedtime ritual where I, we just, all the kids go to their rooms, and I, I go to each room. Uh, my daughter, she's just her 5, 7-year-old, 10-year-old, and it, it, it's like bedtime, cuddle time. And for each of them, it's completely different. What they want to do in that time, their one-on-one time with dad, looks completely different. One wants to talk about every, everything that's happened. They want to process everything. They want to look forward to what's tomorrow. They want to talk about their feelings. And another one, I'm not going to say which number she is, but she's created a game called uh, jump cuddling where she jumps off her bed and see how far she can go into my arms. And somehow that counts as cuddle time because the word cuddle is included in jump cuddle. And so I think each of them, like Aaron was saying, every child has a different journey. I think we've all been saying this. Every child has a different journey. And the question I'm asking myself is, where do you need me on this journey? Like, where can I partner with you as you're going down this journey? The old adage about parenting is that you don't prepare the way for the child, but you prepare the child for the way. And the question I'm asking is, how can I be on your way, your journey with you? Um, because I know for each one of them, it, it's different, and each question that I've got to say, like, I, the best dad you need in this moment, it, it's different for each and every one of them.
0: I feel like I always want to add on, like, just, hey, I've got an example of that.
7: I thought you were going to ask if you could jump cut on
0: <laughs> Jump on I wasn't going to ask, you know. Was, uh, our son with um, my wife, he does, We he's heavy on the feelings, and his thing is they do like every, I forget all of them. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but it's like instead of just good night, it's good night, Merry Christmas, I love you, Happy Easter, Happy Thanksgiving, and they say that every single night. And then one of my daughters, she, when we say good night, she just wants to know what the schedule is for the next four days. So, like, do I have after school care tomorrow? What is who's picking me up on Thursday? All right, I love you and. W- or am I taking my lunch or buying tomorrow? And so I'm yeah. spot on. Yep.
1: So I, Giuseppe, I want you to be aware that there are other people in the world who at nighttime like to jump cuddle besides me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, we're having fun. We'll
1: I, go
8: on this. Suzanne?
1: I did, I not I be did si-
8: want to add on, but not about jump cuddling. <laughs> okay. so, I, I, everybody's been talking about doing this and... and bringing up their children, and uh, they've mentioned children's ages. Our children's ages are 40, 38, 34, and 30. And all of the things that have been said are still in play because they're our kids. And and we have had to learn to, even if we didn't know the Enneagram numbers, and Suzanne did a, a great quickie on how to uh, determine stances, they all need to be responded to by us, by their stance in the same way. So I, I would respond to Joey as an aggressive or Joel as an aggressive person, much different than I would to BJ who is dependent stance or Jenny who's in the withdrawing stance. And that has, it doesn't stop when they move out of the house or it doesn't stop when they're no longer you know near close by it just continues and then at least in terms of our family it multiplies because then they all have spouses (laughs) and grandchildren and it just magnifies the the ways in which we end up trying to carefully respond to each each child according to their stance.
0: Thank you. Uh, The next question that was Tweeted. Thank you. Hashtag LTM parent. Hey, so much Sorry. Uh, for this is for the gut triad eight nine and one. I think it's a great question, and it is. Sorry. Now they're all starting flowing. Thank you. Uh, can you? All right, stop now. Can you uh, speak to how your experience of anger has impacted your parenting? And if you wanna talk for a second about it being that anger triad then if y'all can that'll give y'all a second to think about your answer
1: so when I teach triads uh, I distinguish twos threes and fours with how they manage feelings five sixes and sevens with how they manage fear eights nines and ones with how they manage anger and so going into this it would be good for you to know that eight anger is straight up and then it's over so you know when an eight's angry with you they're obviously angry uh, once they've said all they have to say, then for them it's done. Uh, nine, anger is passive-aggressive. And so it's tricky, and it, um, it, it it is slower to arrive and slower to leave. And one, anger is resentment. And that's because ones turn their anger in on themselves first, and then after they can't hold any more anger, it kind of... S- Spews on to other folks. So ones are seldom angry about what they're angry about. Eights are not angry about things for a very long time, and I think a good way to talk about nines is to say that they are protectively angry.
8: I'm gonna. I'll jump in before Todd does because, gosh. Uh, Exactly what Suzanne said. My anger comes very slowly uh, but when it's there, it's there and My response out of that anger is is usually pretty strong and um, Comes with lots of examples about how they've done something Jesus Nines I agree, Jesus is sweet, but...
1: Seven examples, which is mid-range for nines, is a lot. Like, we get it on three.
8: I, I think part of the reason that we give so many examples... <laughs> let me just reframe that. Part of the reasons I give so many examples is because... I know how uh, really hard my anger can be if I let it go i if if and anger scares nines scares me to get angry scares me, and so I think the examples keep coming out to keep me from letting that anger just totally explode because that kind of anger in a nine that's almost like rage is very scary to nines. And so can we hold it back and 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 keep it in control?
1: So like I've lived with you a long time, we've known the Instagram for a long time, you've never said that. That's very, very helpful. Can I ask a question now? Yes. <laughs> so this is a serious question that could be taken lightly, but don't. So, if you give me nine examples, does that mean you're really mad? <laughs> now, that's an honest question. It's like if you start with the examples, and what you're telling me is you're measuring, you're, you're meeting out, uh,
8: meeting out the anger, your feelings with, and examples, the feelings with examples, it would be too much. Because I think sometimes we nines get so that that anger inside wants to explode. And so if I meet it out
0: piece by piece by piece, it's not going to explode.
1: That's so insightful. Thank you.
0: And just so y'all know, as someone who got in trouble a lot growing up with, so when I got in trouble, it would be a day of verbal processing and examples. (laughs) And the madder she was, the more she verbally processed, and now we've learned that's what all the examples were. So.
1: And look how great you I turned know, this out. Is
9: a breakthrough for us. Todd Lindsay? Uh, well, it was interesting because as an eight, rage and anger are not that scary place. So my son, whenever, as a nine, whenever he did get angry, I was like, let it fly let it go. And I was okay with just being there. And we've never had a physical altercation between him and I, uh, which is not the case of me and my father. But, you know, it was okay. That, that space was okay with me. Um, what I didn't know is that how much my anger affected him. So when I'm driving the car and I have road rage and I'm not talking to him. I'm talking to everybody else out there. And I noticed that he's trying to get out of the car mentally. He's not there anymore. And it took me a while to realize that just my anger in his presence had such a huge impact on him because it disrupted him. His peace, his nine, his internal peace, his external peace, his fear about me having a problem with somebody else. I mean, uh, you know. It, it it I just didn't realize that for so long. Uh, because for me getting angry is not an uncommon event. And and when I you say angry, people would say you're an angry person. I'm like, I'm not angry. I mean you haven't even seen level <laughs> level six through ten are rarely offered to many people. I mean a, a, a four for me seems to look like other people's seven, eight you know, like they're mad, and I'm watching people who are angry. thinking, okay, you know, that's, that's noise, but there's no energy with that. That's, you know, you're not, you're not bringing it. You know, <laughs> commit to it. You know, and because when
8: he was afraid, you're gonna put him on that jet ski
9: again. <laughs> yeah, he was afraid. Uh, you know, so I, I work, I work in an environment where people do get angry at times, and I'm like, you know, I'm... so. It's so, it's a water I swam in for so long, for most of my life, that it just didn't seem, it was, it was, I was, I didn't see it. Um, so I know, I'll stop there. No,
5: that's good. Um, I think for me, something that's helped me with the anger, the buildup for me is definitely um, kind of the same as the nine. Like I'll stuff it and stuff it and get irritated and then just, blow up over something that seems stupid and silly. And I look back in the back of my van and the girl's eyes are huge like, why is she flipping over (laughs) this? And um, I think just um, speaking the little things that irritate me, um, for me, something, you know, trying to get out of the house with three little kids and one of them is always slow and can't find the other shoe and, is goofing off and being silly and I'm like, we've got to go in the car now, you know, and I get irritated and then I start looking around at the mess and somebody dumped their backpack on the floor and those things just get under my skin and irritate me and so the buildup starts coming. And so for me, I've learned um, just to speak it and um, in the car when I'm frustrated and I feel like road rage coming on and riding the car in front of me because we're late and I'm so irritated that they can't get in the car just slowing down and deep breath and saying, you know, mommy's so frustrated that we're running late and I need to calm down and we're going to make it. And it's okay if we're five minutes late. Sometimes people are no big deal, but I'm more telling it to myself, but it kind of lets it go and lets it ooze out a little bit instead of building till it blows. But, um, and I've noticed that's help. And my, our oldest is, is like me in a lot of ways. And the other day I was, we were running late and I was anxious and frustrated and she picks up on that, and she says to the car in front of us, move out of the fast lane, you idiot. <laughs> and it's, I'm sure I've said that, and I'm sure, and I'm like, oh, I've, <laughs> so it's just a reminder to <laughs> deep breaths, and and it's kind of the whole thing with apologizing, just admitting I'm frustrated right now, and I'm trying to to let that go, and realize it's it's not as big a deal as I'm making it is, I hope good for them to see that, yeah. You
1: should be, this is a really hard question. So uh, this morning I I, I do a sit every morning and then sometimes uh, in whatever way the Holy Spirit communicates with me, I get a response. And frequently it's in the shower, which is—it seems like terrible timing on the Holy Spirit's part, not mine. I got to get clean. I don't know, you know. No pen, no paper. Um, so this morning I yelled out to Giuseppe,
8: Joey, would you get a pen and paper,
4: please? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's exactly what happened this morning. So uh, I, I wanted to have I, my intention this morning was. What would be the question that we probably wouldn't think of that might be the one that is the scariest for everybody? And I think this could be it, so I'm going to ask all of us to respond to this. What does it feel like to risk being wrong in matters of great consequence in parenting? What does it feel like to risk being wrong in matters of great consequence in parenting? And since I've had the question all day, I'll go first. Sorry. I think it is so scary to realize that uh, the thing you say or the thing you do or the desire that you have or the way you express yourself could be the thing that moves the needle just a little too far one way or another. And I think it's so scary to play your part as a parent. The only thing that I think is scarier is not to. And children really can't raise themselves. They can't. And we really can't do it perfectly. So um, I I think the thing I want to say is that it feels like to me, not being able to breathe. And it feels like always being wrong. And it feels like I shouldn't have been trusted with children. And it feels like my way was just not quite healthy enough or good enough, and I didn't do enough, and I didn't learn enough, and I didn't, and I didn't. But then, um, our children from 30 to 40 are four of the finest human beings I've ever met they're loving and they're kind and they're generous and two are in recovery and one is too bossy and one is too passive and they're all really good parents and they're all really good to each other's children and they're all very respectful and very good to joe and me and so here's the deal i was scared to death and really hard on myself and we did okay Let me say that again. We have two in recovery and one that's too bossy and one that's too passive and she merges too much with her husband and the other one has her husband merge too much with her and, 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 and they're the finest people I know. So I think we need to be careful how we measure how we did as parents. And my measurement is my kids are still at my table for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And they still tell me when they're mad at me. And there's not a thing that could happen among the six of us that if one of us made the phone call, everybody didn't show up. And all the rest is simply all the rest. That's what I got. Can I hear it again? Yeah. No, you don't want to hear it
7: again?
1: You just don't want to talk? So I'll just read it one more time. What does it feel like, Giuseppe, help him out here. We're old. What does it feel like to risk being wrong in matters of great consequence in parenting? I'll
2: jump in. I I, I just feel like being a parent is flying in the dark. I mean, I, I feel like we have no idea if we're doing the right thing. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we make decisions, we talk about it, we think we're doing the right thing, and, I, I, you know.
3: I, I, I don't, I, saying that I'm wrong, I know there are a lot of things that scare me, but saying that I'm wrong doesn't. Because when you don't say you're wrong, then you lose out on something with your child, and that scares me far more than being wrong. I'll be wrong all day if that's what I need for people to want to have Thanksgiving dinner with me. I mean, that's just not the thing that scares me. I'm not trying to be smug. There are a million things that know. scare me. Know um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm scared of the things that I can't control going forward, that, that sc- those things scare me.
1: I don't mind being wrong, though. Okay. My, what are
5: y'all I'd say I'm most afraid of being wrong in the sense of uh, there's nothing I care more about than my kids and, um, and having them know that I love them and there's nothing I wouldn't do for them and um, trying to control and perfect their world as a one so that they have everything they need and to be a good person, um, but that I might be loving them in a, them in a way that isn't best for them and and not seeing the way that they need to be loved, or, or missing out on on something because I'm just too into myself in the way that I feel that they need to be loved, instead of um, learning who they really are and and how I can best join them on their journey of of growing up. And I, I that scares me.
6: I think that the thing that scares me the most in parenting is just messing this whole gig up. I mean, I, I am the first one to say that we're all going to make mistakes and we're, we're just doing what we know is best, right? Like I get that and I can verbally say that, but I think at the end of the day, when I think about my kids, you know, getting to 18 and leaving, my greatest fear is that, that they'll look back and think I was a bad mom.
7: I've never felt more vulnerable until I was a parent in the sense that the old adage to, to be a parent is forever to, to live with your heart outside of your chest. And the stakes have never, have never been higher to me. Like if, if I mess up at work, like, okay, this church falls apart, which probably would be bad, but you know what? There are other churches people can go to. Don't, if you go to our church, I, I need you to stay here. <laughs> But like, oh, there, someone else can be the pastor. Someone else can do the other things I do with my life. But no one else can, can be my daughter's dad. And I, as a seven, I was really good about staying away from emotions, which I still think might be a skill. Um, uh, I'm, I'm so, listening to every word down here. I can't see you. I can't see you right now. But I... No. <laughs> But there's a part of me that I never was in touch with until uh, I got to be a father. And uh, the fear of whatever my many flaws are, that they could be um, transmitted onto them. Like it's Richard Brewer's thing, if you don't transform your pain, you'll transmit it. And I, I've never been more afraid of how I could let my flaws be transmitted onto, to someone else that I care so much about. And uh, j- just the stakes are so high. And I, I, like I know I mess up, and I, I, I know I drop the ball on, on many things that, in the grand scheme of things, no one's going like, to fault me for, their, for the, the trivial things that, that I, I make mistakes on. Um, but the things with my daughters, they, they, they matter in a way that nothing else has that level of significance in my life. And I, I think shame is so easy to creep in when you're a parent because shame, like Brene Brown says, guilt is what I did is wrong. Shame is I am wrong. And every one of us doesn't do parenting perfect. And every one of us has this part of us that, that knows that what I want to be as a parent, I, I can never live into that. And I guess that's one area of my life I, I do want to be perfect in. Like, I can accept imperfection in multiple areas of my life, but I don't want it to be there as a parent. But, but by the grace of, of God, I, I move forward. And I, I think that's, that's the only thing that keeps me going, is to know that as much as I love my kids, I believe that the creator of this entire thing Somehow loves them more Your
4: question, what does it feel like? I think what it feels like for me is like the weight of the world and the weight of who they 're going to become is on my shoulders, um, and so if i 'm strong enough, then maybe they 'll be good enough if i 'm not, then they, they won 't, um, which is just a ridiculous thing if you when you speak it with a microphone in front of people, you realize how ridiculous it is. Um, <laughs> My biggest fear for them is, um, you know, me, me saying something or doing something that scars them or wounds them for life. That is one of my biggest fears. And, um, you know, I still remember some of the things that my parents said to me as a kid. I still remember some of those things that were scarring and wounding. And so that's one of my biggest fears is to do that. And, and um, I think what is helpful for me, for all of us as parents, whether it's parenting kids with trauma or it's parenting kids that are seemingly easy, wherever it's at in that spectrum is ultimately like I'm not the one that's responsible for shaping them and molding them into a healthy whole human being. Um, you aren't either. I mean, we have this, this opportunity to walk alongside them and help guide them and help lead them in hopefully a healthy way out of a healthy place. But ultimately, I just, I just have to keep Trusting God to take that burden and for him to do it because he's going to do it so much better than me to take that burden off my shoulders and put it where it's supposed to be and just keep pointing them um, to him because I'm totally going to scar them and wound them in some ways. I hope it's small ways, but it's unrealistic to think that we're not going to affect our kids in some way. So I just want to do it in the right way where I'm pointing to the better person that's going to be able to carry all the weight of that and trust that they're going to be okay. They're going to they're going to be sitting as adults one day in some conference learning how to be a better human being, you know, a parent or whatever. They're going to be okay. It's not It's not up to me ultimately um, to shape that.
9: Uh, my my biggest fear is that, I mean, I I remember my son being born and I was there and thinking, this is going to be great. And I know he has a purpose and a place he's supposed to be in his life. My fear was that I would have brought him in the wrong direction and away from that, and brought him so far away from that that he's going to have a lifetime of struggle getting back to who he's supposed to be. And uh, that was that the biggest fear I have. Um, I don't see that playing out in his life right now, which is really amazing. I mean, he's an amazing kid. Uh, so it's, it's I, I actually. Cried like probably three times today, talking, thinking about my son, thinking about you know having conversation about him, about who he is and what he does, and you know. um, But the fear is that you know how much did I create in his life that wasn't his, and what that's going to do to him. I think if
8: I heard the question correctly, it Is what does it feel like for me in that circumstance or situation? And we have a teaching in Life of the Trinity Ministry that we've had for 35 years. Uh, and it goes like this. Each heart must make its own choices. Each heart must have its own experience. Each experience has its own purpose. And I've tried really hard to live by that with our children, to allow them to make their own choices and to have their own experience, aware that their experience has its purpose in their life, just as me making the choices that I've made and the experiences I've had has brought me to this place of the purposes for the experiences that I've had. I, I don't want to make mistakes or bad choices in, in parenting, but I know that I have. And for me as a nine, then what I, what I feel, and it, it's interesting because um, Luke brought it up, Benet Brown's thing. I don't feel shame, but I feel guilt. And because I am, my orientation to time is the past, I then tie that guilt on to all the other times that I have felt guilty about something that I did wrong or some way in which I didn't respond appropriately to life or to another person. And so then I sort of, I drag this uh, baggage of guilt uh, that is, is hard to let go of. Uh, so I think that's, that's the feeling that I, I have and it would only be enhanced in knowing that something I did caused one of my children more pain because of then their choice or their experience and how that flowed.
1: Um, One of the things I I feel a little squirrely about from all of us um, that I just want to be real clear about I, I cannot name one single lesson that mattered from my life from success or joy all the important things I've learned are in some way connected to pain and I think one of the the things that we've not talked about that we all would speak to if it had been one of the questions is don't try to prevent all of the pain that your children have come in their way. Teach them how to deal with it. Because um, life is painful and um, if we protect them, then that's gonna be uh, a job that's gonna end when you do. And I think we just have to give our kids space to know how to deal with pain in some kind of healthy way and not try to protect them from it because you will fail miserably anyway. And then Joel, I don't know what you have planned for wrapping up, but this is gonna be my wrap up. Is that good?
0: That wasn't your wrap up? No.
9: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yes.
1: This is my wrap up. Uh, Your children are really blessed to have parents who on a rainy night in Austin, uh, where the traffic is a little tricky, uh, have come here after a day of doing all the other things you do in life and made arrangements for childcare so that you could come here and listen to us offer loosely what we have that we hope will be helpful. So I'm really concerned about lots of children in the world I'm not concerned about yours. Thank you very much for giving us your uh, trust and um, for allowing us to just give you the morsels that we have. We're all really grateful. Thank
0: you. Give it up for them and give it up for you. Thank y'all so much. Uh I hope you.